Our passage is found in Genesis chapter 3. So if you want to turn there, we'll probably spend a little bit of time there as well as some other verses. session outline today for this uh, part of the gospel project is called sin is defiance against God sin brought death and ruptured our created purpose but hope remains and then sin and death have spread to all humanity and we'll see that as we go through some of these passages and that um, let's uh, I know I had you turn to Genesis 3 but there's actually two two verses I'd like us to look at prior to that that kind of and again you see the context of how the word of God one passage reflects to another passage whether it's at the end of the Bible or at the beginning of the Bible it all interacts with itself and that's important to realize we know that we have a living document here that God provided for us that's truth in that so let's look at Jeremiah uh, chapter 17 verse 9 Jeremiah chapter 17, and we'll read verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than anything else, and incurable. Who can understand it? The Lord stating this, and Jeremiah recording it there. And that, again, we'll, you can see how that will tie into the book of Genesis when we go there. And then also, let's turn to 1 John, a passage in the New Testament. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, and we'll look at verse 4. Actually, we'll probably look at 4 and 5. Because, again, we have that glimmer of hope in Christ in this. More than a glimmer. A bright light, if you will. Everyone who commits sin also breaks the law. Sin is the breaking of law. You know that he, referring to Christ, was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. So we have that confidence. We have the fact that, that Christ has accomplished something there. Um, now I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read down through Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 7. So we'll go back there. And this is a story, it's commonly called the fall. Uh, man, pardon me, got to adjust something here. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, referring to the serpent, Did God really say you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, and that it was so desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So the so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So the first reaction to committing this sin is the idea of shame. And that's, you know, one of the things that sin does is bring shame. And it should. And we live in a culture today which wants to take away all that shame. And it does it culturally. We see it constantly in that. And uh, just a little point I'd like to make there. And that um, one of the uh, comments that they make is that God created humanity and the place that he created was beautiful. It was the Garden of Eden was, was self-sustaining. They were able to be there. They were in peace with God going back and forth. And that we see that right away it was lost in an instant because of disobedience. And that because somebody suggested something to question God. And I think in our own lives, we need very often to be careful that we don't allow that to constantly question. I think questioning is good, but sometimes when we do it outside of the context of Scripture, it's going to come back to bite us. And we see that's what took place there in, uh, in um, Eden here at this point. So um, three other points that came out of this. The first sin, if you will, was the idea of unbelief didn't believe God, then they committed idolatry, and then they committed rebellion. And we'll kind of look at those here in a few minutes. If you take the handout that I passed out, there's a, there's some definitions on the second page of sin. And I thought that it was worth taking time because I know for myself over the years, um, Sin seems to be something that at times is difficult for us to grasp hold of. And there's a whole bunch of different definitions here. And we can read through them because I think it's worth listening to what these various people have said. Some are short, some are long. The first one is by Suzanne Wesley, who was uh, the father or the mother of uh, John Wesley, John and Charles Wesley. John Wesley founded the Methodist Church, and then Charles Wesley wrote a whole lot of hymns. Uh, John Wesley was a very active evangelist, I think primarily in England, if I remember my history right. But uh, whatever, what she had to say about it, as John asked her this question, or so history records, is whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you however innocent it may seem in itself. And I think that's a great elongated version of what sin is and that it truly, um, in her telling this, she really encapsulated where, how all-encompassing sin can be. And that, then R.C. Sproul, uh, Sproul actually did both of these. It says, sin is any lack of conformity, active or passive to the moral law of God, this may be a matter of fact, of thought, or of inner disposition or state. The theological term for this study of sin is hamartiology, from the Greek word harmatia for sin, error, or missing the mark. The Apostle Paul uses the verb hamartano when he writes, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, found in Romans 3.23. And I think that's, Romans 3.23 is something that 
most of us know in this room, and we can always go back to it. And when somebody says, well, I don't sin, well, you can go right back there, and you can go to that, that God says, no, you do sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he goes on, in the least transgression, I set myself above the authority of God, doing insult to his majesty, his holiness, his sovereign right to govern me. Sin is a revolutionary act in which the sinner seeks to depose God from his throne. Sin is a presumption of supreme arrogance in that the creature vaunts his own wisdom above that of the creator, challenges divine omnipotence, authority, with human impotence, and seeks to observe the rightful authority of the cosmic Lord. Again, we take that away from God, and we see that exactly in that passage there. <clears throat> Ravi Zacharias states, Sin is a violation of purpose. Sin goes, against, sin goes against God's moral definitions of life. And how God defined us, that violates that. Malcolm Muggridge, Muggridge states, and he was a public commentator from England, um, long since gone, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically variable fact at the same time that it is the most intellectually resisted. We all resist the idea that we're sinners. Society resists it. You know, we as Christians a lot of times resist it. When somebody says, yeah, you might watch that. You might be treading on thin ice there. Right away, we want to justify our actions, if you will. Bob, Dit, uh, Bob Dittmeyer, another resource that I came across. Sin is failure to love God and others. In our inability to discern if we succeed or our failings it is the deep selfish impulse that drives our behavior. And then finally, from uh, this website, Got Questions. Martiology is a study of sin. Martiology deals with how sin originated, how it affects humanity, and what it will, re and what it will result in after death. To sin essentially means to miss the mark. We all miss God's mark of righteousness. Martiology then explains why we miss the mark, how we miss the mark, and the consequences of missing the mark and then I think that those were worth um, reading writing down I thought it'd be worth uh, publishing for you guys a lot of times we lose track of really what sin is whether you know in any um, way shape or form the the Hebrew word um, means to miss the mark and there's a a certain discipline in target shooting rifle target shooting where they shoot at bottle, bottle caps at about 25 feet, which is less distance than from me to Frank. And the idea is, is to put the, the bullet dead center of that bottle cap. And they practice and they shoot and they fire five shots. And it is amazing how difficult it is to have five rounds at that distance go through the same hole. Very few men have accomplished that. And that's that idea. If you get off, you've missed the mark. And that's how sin is. It's missing God's mark. God has said, this is perfection. This is what it is. You've got to put your life, everything you do and say from the day you're born till the day you die has to hit that bullseye. All of your life has to pass through that, that center point. And that, and that is a very difficult standard. It's even more difficult with, uh, with archery, which is where this, target, this uh, word comes from. The idea of missing the mark. And if you go down to any archery shop, you will see guys that have um, 
uh, they call it Robin Hooding, and you probably see it in the movies where uh, uh, arrow will be in the in the target, and another one will hit the shaft and impact it in such a way that it'll travel down the shaft to the other one. Very seldom is that original arrow dead center, and for that other arrow to hit it is luck, and they'll tell you that it wasn't intentional. So that gives you an idea how difficult it is for us as humans to hit the mark of perfection that God is asking us to. And so that's what sin is, is we're missing, we're missing the mark throughout our life in that. And so um, let me read <clears throat> again what they have to say here. First sin begins with unbelief. The serpent launched his offensive, <clears throat> his offensive by asking, did God really say? His aim was not so much to state an argument with Eve, but to cast doubt on Eve's word, on God's word. If you look at it, Satan approached her. Did God really say you can eat from any tree in the garden? She was out there. They were there. Obviously, he had access to the garden. He had access to them, and so they're communicating. And then the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. God never said not to touch it. <clears throat> he said not to eat it. And so we again say, and the man, Adam's not even commenting. He's there because later on it says that, uh, so she took some of it, she gave it to her husband who was with her. Um, and that's important to recognize that he wasn't away from her. He was with her, but he never made the comment. He never said, now wait a minute, dear. This is what it said. And so anyway, then it falls on. And so she takes of it. No, you will not die. The serpent again challenges her. And she doesn't refute it, refute it with what she was told, nor does Adam. And so this goes on. And it falls down. And then all of a sudden, you know, they've sinned. And they've recognized it. And now they're ashamed. And the, the point that they make is... Uh, like I said earlier, is the first one is the idea of unbelief. The second one is idolatry. Um, sin moves us to the idea of idolatry, and we see that. She saw that it was good. She idolized it, if you will. She said, ooh, okay, disobey God, let's do this. And so she went down that path with it. And that, <clears throat> man, that's something in my throat. Um, so they took the created thing and they elevated it above what God had done for them and what he had said. They put it in place of what God said, do this. They had all the rest of the, the garden and yet they chose to fixate on that one tree. I know Pastor Ken in the past has used the idea of balloons and that. And uh, it's, it's great because, you know, you could use any knowledge you want, but you fixate on that one thing, and you're going to gravitate toward it. And that's the idea of you put it ahead of what you know is right, and that's what idolatry is. Whether we idolize a thing we want to do, or we idolize a food, or we idolize a, an item, or we idolize ourselves. We put it ahead of God and that. And then finally, in this uh, section, it talks about the idea of rebellion. <coughs> They rejected what God had said, and they rebelled against his authority. And that's where all sin ends up. So you see the, the progression, if you will, of any sin. And I know that we as Christians, because we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, any sin that we commit, we do by choice. We have the opportunity not to, but we choose. We choose to do this, or we choose to do that. And so often, another quote from a 
guy that I appreciate listening to, Ravi, he says, you can choose the act, you can choose, but you cannot choose the consequences. And the consequences of our sin, the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin certainly wasn't to send sin through the rest of the world. They just wanted to see what was available. And as a result, though, it has affected mankind forever. So we need to recognize that, that a lot of times, well, we can't choose our consequences. We have to live with them in that. Um, one of the doctrines that they want to emphasize here is the sin as a rebellion. <clears throat> because the Bible portrays people as responsible beings called to respond in faith and obedience to God's revelation, the Bible often portrays sin in terms of defiance and rebellion toward God the King. Seen in light, in this light, sin is personal, willful disobedience, the raising of a clenched fist toward the one who made us. And that. And let's turn to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. And a lot of us who grew up during the 60s saw that clenched fist raised at a lot of different political regimes. But we need to recognize that when we sin, that's what we're doing to God is we're raising a clenched fist in him and saying, no, not your will be done, but mine. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up. There is mankind, but they have rebelled against me. And there again is that idea of raising a fist. Thank you, Paige. I appreciate that. Maybe my voice won't be so crackly. So we have the three aspects of sin, unbelief, idolatry, and rebellion. We can see it in ourselves, and we can certainly see it in the world around us. And I don't, I'm not going to go into details. I mean, we all read the papers. We all see the news. We see evidence of it everywhere. So <clears throat> we don't need to go there in that. But to emphasize again the idea that see, sin leads to shame. And shame is to bring us back to God it's not it's not something that should do anything other than that and say wait a minute I've crossed something here I should be ashamed of myself especially as a Christian as a believer we need to recognize that that's the Holy Spirit acting in our lives to bring us back to the Father and say wait a minute confess your sins first John 1 9 says for if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and that's a that's a promise that we have that's that hope that we have in Christ because of what he did um, going on now point two is sin brought death and ruptured our created purpose but hope remains before we go into that is there any comments on that first part of Genesis there that we read any thoughts on it yes Guyan the gist of what Guyan was saying if you didn't hear was the fact that everyone thinks that they know the difference between right and wrong we know because we have the word of God today they didn't have the word of God yeah we should check that every time what is right what is wrong that we only know that as we go through the word of God and so it's important they didn't have that but they had God telling them they had the presence of God with them and they still challenged it because of a temptation 
It wasn't sin to listen to him. It was, tempta- it was sin as soon as they acted on that temptation, that challenge to God's authority. And that's exactly what, what we tend to do. Did God really say that? It should be okay. I can tell a little white lie. It's not a big deal. I can go five miles an hour over a speed limit. That's my, anyway, I won't go there. <laughs> and that. Um, and something Guyan brought up is the fact that whether we know it's God's truth or not, let's look at Romans. I think, again, we're familiar, but I want to reference it. Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> and I wasn't going to read that, but I, I just want to point it out. I'm not going to read the the whole thing. But I want to start in verse 18. It's interesting. It's such a contrast as you, if you look at Romans chapter 1, Paul starts out kind of with his own testimony and why he preaches and does what he does and the grace of God and all that. And then all of a sudden he just drops the hammer, if you will, in verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And that's what we see going on. Here is sin. Uh, again, since what, what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power, divine nature, that have been clearly seen since creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. And there's that idea. We know what's right and wrong. And yet we continue to deny it. Like I mentioned about shame. Shame, you know, psychologists and sociologists have said, well, that's a cultural thing. We don't need to encourage that. But we do. That's what helps children know that what they're doing is wrong. Who wants a child to lie? Who wants a child to? Yeah, they're guilty. You know, who wants a child to steal their first day of school, you know? Or when they're... None of us parents have ever had to teach our children to lie. We didn't even have to teach our granddaughter to lie. And that finally we got to admit, well, yeah, I am telling a story, you know. So, uh, and that's what it is. And so we need to recognize that in uh, what shame is, that it has value. We don't need it to, to control us, but we need to use it to bring us back to what 1 John 1, 9 says, and that's confessing our sins, and I think that's important very important so let's read down through uh if there's no other comments we'll read yes no they did well they did afterwards i think is a is the way to to look at it yeah yeah told them not to do it so there was a choice that they made we know today because we have the written word sorry if i didn't make that clear any other yes keith In essence, what Keith is saying, if you didn't hear him, is there's that draw, one of the things that drove them at this point and is still prevalent today is the desire to gain wisdom. We Google everything. And, and the flesh, yeah. And, the, and it's gaining wisdom is not a bad thing. God says, study to show ourselves approved or right workmen, referring to the context of the Word of God. But he's also given us a, a world to understand, to study, but put in the context that he created it. Not that it evolved, not that it is X, whatever, you know, that, that we tend to do, science tends to do. Right now, in our, there's the worship of science. It's, it's uh, the religion of science, and it's uh, a phrase that I think, if I get it right, is scientism. The idea that you worship science because it has all the answers. 
but it doesn't. Science will tell you that. You talk to any scientist. They don't know everything. They take a step of faith in evaluating what is out there when they do things. Yeah, we know a lot because we've learned from other people. We learn from um, Sir Isaac Newton, the idea of gravity. You know, nobody knew what it was till then. It isn't bad to gain that knowledge, but when it supersedes the truth of Scripture, that's when we get into trouble. That's when knowledge becomes a God unto itself. And I think, essentially, I believe that's what Keith is trying to say. Yes, Willie. Willie was saying that all, in the book of Proverbs, it references the idea that all wisdom is from God. And it's important that we recognize that, that we praise God, that we give him the glory for the wisdom and for the understanding we have about the world that we live in, in whatever context it may be, from anything from farming to building houses to childbirth to the human body, you know, all of it. it should be, we should give glory to God for it. And uh, Let's go on to point two, uh, starting in Genesis chapter 3, and we'll start reading in verse 14. Actually, let's start in verse 8. I hate to leave out all of it. Uh, then the man and the woman heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and they hid themselves really from the Lord God among the trees of the garden so the Lord God called out to them and he said to him where are you and he said I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid then he asked who told you that you were naked did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from then the man replied the woman you gave me to be with me she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it so the Lord God asked the woman what is this that you have done? And the woman said, It was the serpent. He deceived me, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head, and he will strike, and you will strike his heel. That's the hope that we have because that's referencing what Christ did for us on the cross. That's In God in his mercy, he could have destroyed him right there. But he chose not to. And Christ is the seed, exactly. And, but he provided that hope. There's his grace and his mercy starting in, in the very first part of the book of Genesis. And it carries on. Um, if there's one theme that carries through the scriptures is the gospel, the good news that, that God is a provider. But on the negative side or on the flip side of that is the fact that sin is recorded all through the Bible, whether we, you want to see it or not. Everything is God's reaction to man's sin. And that's a good thing because it shows that his, it shows his grace and his mercy constantly from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. And that's the hope we have. It's not a God that has said, I'm done with you, put his thumb down. We get to, to Noah, you know. Noah wasn't perfect, we know that. It's quickly evident right after he got out of the, the ark and what went on there. And yet, God, in his grace and mercy, said, no, I will spare, I will take care of. And we continue on, we continue on through the... The history, and all of you if, you, if you think through the Bible, sin is a predominant theme 
But alongside that, the parallels, that predominant theme of, of us rejecting God is God not rejecting us, but reaching out, reaching out, reaching out, reaching out, all the way to the end. And that's our hope, and that's what we need to recognize. Yes, Guyan. Guyan made the point, and it's so true, that without sin, our personal sin, what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, as well as what we were imputed from Adam with, we would not know God's forgiveness. And that's so true, and that's his grace and his mercy, part of his attributes. And he holds that intention with all the rest of his attributes, the idea that he's holy, the idea you know, that he's righteous, that he can't stand the sight of sin, that he can't be in the presence of sin. And yet somehow God, in, his, in, in who he is, his makeup, can hold those things in tension in that. So anyway, continuing on, he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. And it doesn't say that you weren't going to have kids without labor pains. It just says they're going to intensify. So just a little warning there. You were, you're still were going to have some pain. You will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded, <coughs> commanded you, do not eat. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing out of the skins for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, Since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. And so we see there that not only spiritual death, that separation from God, but also physical death now is upon mankind in this verse, in this passage as we look at it. They make some uh, um, five ways that sin damages our lives. I don't think this is exhaustive, but I think it's worth reading, and I think it ties into the rest of what we do. First sin leads to pain. Prior to the fall, there was no mention of pain. Physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, there was no pain there. But now all of a sudden there is. There's pain between, emotionally between the man and the woman. Adam and Eve, there was pain. There was pain, greater pain in childbirth. There was pain between them and God. Uh, there was pain between, you know, now he had to go out, he was going to get blisters. He was going to stub his toe. He was going to do all those things he's going to get thorns in his hands and those of you who've had splinters they hurt sometimes sometimes they take a while to fester out boy do they feel good when they do come out so all of that as a result of sin as what took place there um, it leads to relational conflict and I just mentioned that not only between Adam and Eve but also between God and mankind there was no longer that that peace that they had between them the fact that you know they could talk they could walk in the garden now there was that sense that there was no connection there there was conflict in that and what they did 
there's the idea of uh, death, and I mentioned that. And then uh, and there's a couple verses we should look at, too, in regards to death, I think. Uh, oh, and one other point. They talk about futility and, and how our lives are uh, characterized kind of in a, they mentioned by thorns and thistles, but uh, if you go to the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon makes a great point in saying that all of life is futile. So in our humanity, we can see that life is futile. We know people that have reached the pinnacle of success and have ended their life or gone entirely nuts because of the futility of life. They realized when they got there that they weren't successful, that they were still lacking. And the only person that can fulfill that is Christ. There's many testimonies about people that were super successful that felt empty, felt devoid of, of that. And so what they did, you know, in, in accepting Christ, all of a sudden there was that sense of fulfillment. And it's important that we recognize that just because you get to the top of the heap doesn't mean you've arrived. Without Christ and without God in your life, you won't find that. And that's important to recognize. And that he can take away that sense of futility uh, in that. And then uh, let's look at Psalm 51, verse 5. And this is talking about death. This is more uh, spiritual than just physical. I'd just like to re reference these so that we have something to hang those comments on. Uh, Psalm 51, verse 5. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. That idea, again, that Willie brought up about wisdom coming from God, but the idea that we're born in sin and that we're guilty. And then also in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Just cannot get away from the book of Ephesians. That's a good thing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, and the spirit, the spirit now working, not the spirit, but the spirit now working in, in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, and here's that promise, and I can't, can't read just one part of this. You got to read the whole thing. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up, seated us in the heavens, so that in the coming age he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through the kindness, his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And that. So there we see that it is God that provided this cure to sin. And it's, I hope that, I know that we do recognize it, but it can't be emphasized enough. They make a comment that I think is worth recognizing as we go back there to Genesis, is that Adam and Eve were expecting God the destroyer. And I think sometimes, and I kind of mentioned that, that he certainly could have put them to death right there because they violated what he had said in that they broke his law. Not a law that they had set up for themselves, but his law. And I think that, yeah, yeah, ultimately. 
<laughs> Adam did. <laughs> and then Eve said, it's the serpent you created. So there's that blame game right away, right off the bat. We can't get away from that. And then... Um, Let's, uh, I think there's a good, uh, some good verses to read here in, in Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 12 through 21. This is uh, God, you know, is, is uh, confronting Adam and Eve, if you will. So let's turn there. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for just a person, uh, for just a person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than since we now have been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. For if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we will rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have now received this reconciliation through him. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, that's what God said there. In this way, death spread to all men because all sin. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nonetheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses and even uh, over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is the prototype of the coming one. But the gift is not like the uh, transpa uh, trespass. For if by one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift overflowed to the many by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass death reigned, through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as though, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is life-giving justification for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespasses, but the sin multiplied. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So then, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, that emphasis on what God provided for us. And it, I, you can't help just read one verse. You've got to read the whole passage to get the just of what's being communicated there as you look at that passage. Another uh, passage you might want to uh, write down, we're not going to look at it, and that would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 45 through 49, talking about a similar thing as well. Um, 
Then one of the other items that God did here as he uh, provided in chapter 3 is he took animals and he killed them. He took the skins and became a seamstress, a tailor, if you will, and he made clothes for Adam and Eve. And even in that, you've got to see God, the fact that they wore clothes that God himself had made for them. And I think that's pretty spectacular in that. Uh, run out of, what's that? He had to kill his, what he had created, he had to shed the blood of that animal to make the, the clothing for them. And that, I think we need to recognize how, how pervasive sin became at that point. And that uh, sin and death then spread to all of humanity. And that's in uh, Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 8. Uh, Adam was into, uh, let's go ahead and read the passage. Uh, and that Adam was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. Then she also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of the flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain uh, presented some of his land's produce as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his uh, brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were there in the field Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him then the Lord God said where is your brother Abel I don't know he replied am I my brother's guardian and then the rest of it goes on and uh, God's judgment on Cain I think what I would like us to kind of focus on is the fact that the Lord God challenged Cain at that point because he knew what was in his heart it wasn't that uh, he wasn't to give a grain offering if you will a, veg a vegetable offering but it was something in Cain's heart and, that, and they make a point of that in the, in the passage because the Levitical laws weren't present at this time Abel took from the first of his the best he wanted to give the best back to God but Cain it's not recorded that he did that. He said he took some of his produce and he presented it to the Lord. And so I think it's important that we recognize that. And then the fact that the Lord approached Cain personally and said, why are you, so, you know, challenged him. Why are you so furious? Why do you look despondent? You know, much like a parent may do that to a child. You know, what's bugging you? Why, why are you acting this way? And then the, the response of God is sin is crouching at the door, and that idea is of, a, of an animal crouching there ready to pounce. And that's what sin is. It's always at us. It's always nagging at us, ready to take a hold of us in that. And we've all seen pictures of lions, leopards, cheetahs, and how they attack an animal. There's that pounce, that initial attack, you know. And that's what sin does. It wants to go after us and get us. And that's what God is reminding him here. His desire is for you. But we must rule over it. We must stop it before it ever takes place in our lives. And, that, and, that's, and that's God telling Cain that personally. And yet, he allowed it to overwhelm him, and then it went on from there. And that. So, but we're all that way. 
without Christ in us, without the Holy Spirit in us, we're also wicked. We don't know how wicked we can be. We, we, we pass judgment on others. We say, I would never do that. I would never do what Cain did. We're capable of that. You know, Hitler had a mom and dad. Hitler played with toys. Hitler did, he was a kid. Kicked rocks, talked to himself, everything that a kid does. But somewhere, sin entered his heart and got worse and worse and worse and worse till he did what he did. And we need to recognize that. None of us are above that, of that level of sin. Not one of us in that. And if we do, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 1, start reading through chapter 4 and realize how pervasive and how controlling and how manipulative sin is in our lives, in anyone's lives. These people were perfect. They had God right next, just like she's sitting here and sitting here. That's how close they were to God. And yet they still disobeyed what he had to say. Go ahead, Guyan. Yeah, Cain was very much a willing participant, like Guyan brought out. Cain knew that he, you know, the Lord told him, you know, what he, what he was to do. And yet he, he said, why are you doing that? And, that? and that's the way it is for us, too. We have the truth of the Word of God. It's, I'm so thankful that we have it. And, and I pray that we continue to use it in our lives, that you recognize that. Um, I also, any other comments? We're running short on time, but uh, a little bit. Okay. If you take the family connection, <clears throat> I think that uh, the one that I would encourage you that have children to do is probably uh, the questions as well as the last one. Uh, because we live in such a media-driven desire to know knowledge, as Keith pointed out, take a minute to scroll through the social media feeds, the news, or to talk about issues in the lives of your family or friends. Discuss together the reality that sin has broken the world and is the root problem for all other problems we face. Choose specific items or areas of brokenness to pray over each this day. In your own lives, in your own little family, those areas where you see that playing out. If you come up with several prayer requests, allow each uh, family member to pray over different ones each day. Instead of stressing over the issues of brokenness has caused in our world, pray for God's healing and repentance among his people. So we can do that. You can also, if you don't have kids in the house, we can certainly pray for our world. It's a broken world we live in, and God says, pray for it. Pray that we can be salt and light, that this church can be salt and light, that I as an individual can be salt and light in this week to come. So with that, if there's no other comments or questions, I'll go ahead and close. Yes. She brought out the fact that sin, uh, in God's eyes, all sin is sin. It separates us from God. Sin has, I'll add to her, sin has consequences differently, you know, but sin is sin. It separates us from God. And in God's eyes, it's all that way. The littlest to the biggest, what we consider the biggest. God doesn't label it that way. It's not recorded that way in Scripture. So the consequences, yes, very much so. And that. Okay, let's close. Father God, thank you for this privilege we've had to look at your word, to study about how sin affects us between us and you and how it started out as innocuous as it seemed just taking a piece of fruit and yet the devastating effects it has had over all of humanity but even in that darkness you reached out and you provided hope right away you were there you provided not us but you you 
provided a solution and we live in that privilege of mercy and grace through the death of your son on the cross and we thank you for that thank you for this day now in christ's name amen